Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Central London service. To find out about upcoming talks at each of our services, or to listen to other talks, please visit ChristchurchLondon.org. Now, before I um, invite your way to come and um, continue our series this morning on faithful presence, I would like to read our verse for this morning. And it is from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and from verse 12 to 20. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food for the stomach and stomach for the food, but God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I take then the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body. But he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Now, I would like to welcome um, Joel to come up and him, together with his wife, Dee. They lead both of our um, East services. So let's put our hands together and welcome him onto the stage. Thank you, Ange. Well, good morning. Oh, wow, that was good. Much better than Stockwell. How are you doing? Oh, I love it. Wow. She could do this all morning. Uh, it is great to be back here. I really love coming uh, to preach to you guys here at the Central Service. It was great to be here a few weeks ago uh, with Love London. Uh, and I just wanted to say before I uh, kicked off uh, the preach today, just to say thank you for praying for us as we have launched our morning service. We uh, launched our 1030 service about, uh, well, in October. And I just wanted to say thank you for praying for us. I know you've prayed here uh, and it's gone really well. It's been a great atmosphere, great community. God's really uh, met with us as we've done that. Um, and I just ask you to continue to pray. Um, if I could be specific, please do pray for a new venue for us. We are, our, the venue we've got is quite small. And we, we are looking for a new space um, to meet in. So please do pray for us uh, as we do that. Um, but I just want to say thank you uh, so much for praying for us. We really appreciate it. We all know that we live in a context where Christianity is no longer the dominant religion. Now, this can pose all sorts of challenges and pressures as we seek to follow Jesus here in this city. But this is not a new experience for us. The church has been here many times before. And as we've gone through this series, Faithful Presence, which we are near to the end of now, we've looked at how the Bible and what the Bible has to teach us about living as a faithful presence, a community of people who follow Jesus wholeheartedly and seek to represent him well to this city Today we're going to look at something that is arguably the most powerful demonstration of being a faithful presence, what we do with our bodies. Being present is an embodied reality. You cannot be present in a city or a community or relationship without being physically present. 
It would not be enough for us as followers of Jesus to engage with the world through, through interesting tweets or engaging uh, online content. An online presence is not nearly enough when it comes to being a faithful presence. And this really came home to me uh, a few years ago in Paddington Station. I was seeing quite a, a traumatic thing uh, where a, a mother was trying to drag her son away from his father. It looked like a, a broken relationship and the end of dad's term of childcare. The mum was trying the best that she could. Uh, the father was helpless to do anything. And the boy was just distraught, struggling to live with the reality of being away from one of the two people he loves the most. I can't actually remember being brought to tears before in public, but this, this moment felt like a microcosm for the brokenness in our world. This moment was really difficult for me, let alone the parents and, of course, the young boy caught in the middle. If the presence of his father could have been compensated through texts or through Skype or through letters, then people write letters still, apparently, uh, then that would have had a far, more dramatic, uh, far less uh, dramatic influence on that young boy's life. Genuine, pres genuine, genuine presence is, a, is an embodied, physical, intimate, communal experience. And so what this passage calls us uh, to think about today is, is how we stay faithful within that embodied reality. If being faithful is a physical experience, then how we use our bodies plays a significant part as to whether we are answering the call to be faithful or not, both in our relationships with ourselves, with each other, and with God. And how we use our body and the purpose we ascribe to it has often been, throughout the centuries, the kind of the climax or the, the tip of the iceberg for the uh, worldview or ideology that someone believes. What we do with our body says so much about our vision for the good life. It can reveal the value we place on ourselves, the priorities we have in our life and the desires of our heart. What we do with our bodies, I, I think, actually says more about what we believe or think to be true than what we say we believe or think be true. And so how does our culture today view the purpose of the body? Well, the late food writer Anthony Bourdain, he, he perfectly summed up, I think, the, the cultural climate when it comes to the purpose of the body in our culture. He said, your body is not a temple. It's an amusement park. Enjoy the ride. Explicit in this understanding or in the understanding of this idea is that the Christian worldview when it comes to food and drink, it is dull. When it comes to sex, it is stoic. And when it comes to life in general, it is boring and should be disregarded if we're going to have a fulfilled or happy life. That instead, our bodies should be used to create the maximum amount of pleasure possible and fun as possible as we possibly can. So is that true? Which are our bodies? Are they a temple or a theme park? Now, uh, this passage at first reading might seem slightly odd, uh, if it's your first time here, you might be sat thinking, what on earth have I come to? What have I done? If you bought a friend for the first time, you might be kind of sinking in your chair like, oh my gosh, why didn't they tell me this was this talk? Uh, ho hopefully that has kind of broken some of the awkwardness. Um, so let's just give some context to this passage. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, a church that he actually spent six, uh, 18 months developing and growing himself. Uh, and Corinth was one of the most influential cities of its day. It was rebuilt by the Romans a few years before Jesus was born, and it was on an incredibly strategic piece of land. It was a port city, and one side of the port you could get to Europe and Italy, and another you could get to Asia. And so the city attracted entrepreneurs from all over the world, from northern Africa, from Greece and Italy, and became a hub of innovation and activity. And as well as this, probably because it was a port city, um, people, it was quite transient, 
uh, it kind of got a reputation of being a, a kind of anything goes type place. It was difficult to build a reputation if you were there for such a short space of time. But added into that, it was also the home of the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love, pleasure, beauty, and fertility. And as a result, sexual expression was a huge part of the culture of that city. One ancient writer, uh, writing before the time of Paul, he reportedly said that the old temple had more than a thousand temple prostitutes. And so the Corinthian church, made up of Jews and non-Jews and people from all around the world, would have had multiple diverse experiences and, and worldviews that had shaped them up to that point. And now they were, were trying to navigate them uh, together, trying to figure out what does it look like for us to bring all these together, work through them, and then be united under the way that Jesus offers us. And I actually think that's a really important point for us to make just as we start this conversation. Every single one of us will be carrying with us different experiences, different views, different family or cultural expectations, and perhaps even some baggage that has shaped our lives up till now, particularly when it comes to the purpose of the body. Some of us may have been maybe part of church for, for years. Some of us may be on the beginning of that journey. But we are all carrying, all of us are carrying remnants of a worldview that need to be reshaped into the way, the truth, and the life that Jesus calls us to, just like the church in Corinth would have had to. And, and in many ways, this is actually heightened uh, more than anything else when it comes to the purpose of our bodies and how our physical nature uh, and our desires influence who we are and the way that we live. And so today, as we try to find the truth of Scripture, let's just bear that in mind and ask the Holy Spirit to just reveal things to us Maybe some things we need to let go of and maybe some things we need to take hold of as we continue. Now, one big part of the, the mashup of, of perspectives that was facing uh, the Corinthian church at that time was the ancient Greek philosophy of Gnosticism. Now, to put it very simply, Gnosticism believed that the spiritual world was bad and the physical world the other way around. The spiritual world was, world was good, the physical world was bad. That would have been a bad mistake to make. Um, <laughs> As a result, what we did with our bodies kind of made no difference to our search for the good life, or maybe even hindered our pursuit. We could either indulge our physical desires, or we could starve them. In fact, a, a popular uh, Greek Gnostic pun, apparently Greek Gnostic puns were popular, uh, was that the body, Greek word soma, is a tomb, sema, your soma is a sema, which is a fun, word to say, fun thing to say. The perception was that there was nothing good about the physical world. The body was seen as something that stood in the way of the good life, not something that was intrinsic to it. So if you add that into the melting pot, uh, with, along with the temple of Aphrodite, the, this goddess of sex, beauty, and pleasure, that towers over your city's culture, and you also throw in some bad theology. Some people in the Corinthian church thought that you could, because we're free in Christ, we can do whatever we want with our bodies. You get a very interesting perspective on the role the body has to play, one that probably looks more like a theme park than it does a temple. And so this is the context in which Paul is trying to bring some truth, some insight, and some wisdom into. But ultimately, I think what Paul is trying to get at here, maybe a, a deeper question that he's trying to answer that is relevant for us as well as what uh, was particularly relevant for the Corinthian church, is the question of freedom. The perception in a statement like Bourdain's is that if you see your body as a theme park, you are free to do whatever you want and enjoy life. But if you see your body as a temple, your freedom is restricted, leaving you unfulfilled and unhappy. And so the overriding principle with the theme park idea is that you're free. In the temple, you're not. Now, I, I think this speaks right to the heart of our culture today. 
Because in, in many ways, both in and outside of the church, we see freedom as our ultimate cultural value. In previous generations, freedom was an expression of a deeper, more intrinsic, ultimate reality. For example, the freedom to have uh, the, the freedom to have um, what am I saying? The freedom to have the freedom to have oh, what am I saying? <laughs> the freedom to have freedom over your own choices, which is a terrible sentence, but we'll go with that. Uh, was because of the deeper conviction that you are valued, that you're you're made in the image of God, you are a valuable person. Therefore, you should have freedom to choose. Now, however, freedom has become our ultimate goal. And Jonathan Grant, in his book, uh, Divine Sex, he says that now the emphasis is on expressing freedom rather than on what freedom expresses. And so anything that comes up against this value, like this passage maybe appears to do, can make us feel uncomfortable, maybe even outraged. The philosopher Charles Taylor, he calls the moment we're living in as the age of authenticity, saying that for many people today to set aside their own path in order to conform to some external authority just doesn't seem comprehensible as a form of spiritual life. Living in such an age, then, we have total freedom to define our own authentic version of the good life, customizing our lives to to whatever seems right to us. And this idea of submitting to something outside of ourselves maybe seems at best twee or at worst immoral. And this has infiltrated the church as well. As Grant says, living with the age of, of, of authenticity then, we can make whatever we want of our spiritual experience and moral convictions. We may not even need to be part of a church. Technology encourages us to personalize our religious experience, podcast our favorite speakers, plug in a suitable solo worship experience, and attend church simply for the social interaction and romantic prospects. If things don't turn out well, we can always find a new place to worship in the competitive spiritual marketplace. But this is not the vision of life that Paul is calling us to. Paul is not saying that to follow Jesus, you need to give up your freedom because he implies you were not free in the first place. When Paul writes that you are not your own, you were bought with a price, he's saying two things. Firstly, as followers of of Jesus, we are not our own. We belong to him. But he, he also makes a claim of what we were before we were followers of Jesus. To be bought with a price suggests that previously we were owned or enslaved to something else, something we needed to be freed from. And so many of us, perhaps even some of us here today, we see becoming a follower of Jesus as losing your freedom. But that is not what Paul is suggesting. Paul is suggesting we are not free. We had to be bought. Now he could be writing to us today when he quotes perhaps a challenge he has heard from someone in the Corinthian church that says, I have the right to do anything. But Paul responds with, but I will not be mastered by anything. The journey that Paul is taking us on is that freedom, the right to do anything, will lead to being mastered by something. That if you live out the reality of having freedom, to do, the freedom to do anything, you will be mastered by something. If you try to live out freedom on your own, you'll lose it. And perhaps one of the best examples of this journey of freedom is that of Augustine. Augustine was a bishop bishop from northern Africa, and his influence on the church still today is, and society, in fact, is remarkable. But he was not immune from this temptation of freedom. Before he became a follower of Jesus, he lived a life of ultimate freedom. He followed the call of his desires and his passions, and he described his journey like this. By servitude to passion, habit is formed. And habit to which there is no resistance becomes necessity. By their links connected one to another, hence my term, a chain. A harsh bondage held me under restraint. The desires that we are free to express, 
promise us they will satisfy, continue to entice us as they draw us deeper in and eventually become our master, leading us away from Jesus. By placing freedom as our ultimate, our our idol even, we lose it. And the words of Jesus feel pretty on point in, in this context when he said, whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. As I was researching this, I was really struck by the story of Russell Brand. I'm sure most of us here know at least part of his story. And in many ways, he was the example of the kind of life that our culture often portrays as the good life. He was wealthy, successful, could do whatever he wanted with anyone he wanted. But this did not lead him to a path of life and joy. In fact, it was the opposite. Here's what he said, and uh, I've edited it slightly because this is church. (laughs) This is the thing. When you get the things your culture tells you you should be doing and you experience them, now you know you can stop chasing the carrot because you've had a bite out of it and it's like, hold on a minute, this is rubbish. It's a hard one to learn because anything that's got an orgasm at the end of it, you know, there's a degree of pleasure to be had. But it takes a while to recognize the emotional cost on me, the spiritual cost on other people, the fact that it's preventing me from becoming a father, from becoming a husband, from settling, from becoming rooted, from becoming actually whole from becoming a man, from becoming connected. It takes a while to spot that. I think a lot of people don't get the opportunity to break out of that pattern. And I would never have spotted it had I not been a heroin addict and gone, hold on a minute, you're doing that thing again. Same with fame and same with celebrity. Because I had the template and experiences, oh, this is addiction. You're expecting this thing to make you feel better. I was so struck by that quote because he had the freedom to define his own path, and that led him to a place of addiction that he needed then to break free from. Only because of his previous addiction to drugs could he, could he recognize, could he make the connection to other seemingly more innocent things that actually our culture, as he said, tells us we should be doing. That as he reflected on, on his life, he could see that the choices he was making were stopping him from becoming fully whole. When we live for the age of authenticity, it can so easily lead to bondage. And James K. Smith, in his brilliant book, On the Road with St. Augustine, he further emphasizes this. Insofar as I keep choosing to try to find that satisfaction in finite, created things, whether it's sex or adoration or beauty or power, I'm going to be caught in a cycle where I'm more and more disappointed in those things and more and more dependent on those things. I keep choosing things with diminishing returns, and when that becomes habitual and eventually necessary, then I forfeit my ability to choose. The thing has me now. This is the experience of Russell Brand and Augustine, who tried to ride the theme park without understanding the consequences. And just to say, it's, it's really easy with a passage like, like this to skip over the reality of prostitution, because Paul is speaking directly to those who were taking advantage of that system. And so often, when it comes to this kind of passage, we can read, read through the eyes of those people who had the choice whether to embrace that life or not, rather than through the eyes of the most vulnerable that held hostage to that system. But I think a key idea for us to remember is this. When it it comes to the vision we have for the good life, when it comes to the vision we have for the purpose of our bodies, it has to be one where everyone can flourish, especially the most vulnerable. Corinth was a a theme park that idolized and worshipped sex, pleasure, and desire. But anything we worship that was not created to be worshipped will inevitably lead to oppression, slavery, and death, starting with the most vulnerable. That was the experience in Corinth, and I can say without doubt it's true of our culture 
to. We may not have a physical temple on a hill, but so much of our culture is expressed through the idol of pleasure, indulgence, and beauty. Now today, we have a very complicated relationship with our bodies. In one respect, we spend a huge amount of time and energy and effort on refining our bodies to to create this kind of idolized vision of what we want to see looking back at us in the mirror. In in our culture, particularly in our city, I think, um, it can even lead us to stop doing things that are healthy for us, like eating and things like that. But even if we don't do any of that, the, the overwhelming message that we are bombarded with through advertising and social media and even just walking through the tube or, or on our high street is that if you do not look like this, you are not enough. That your value is somehow diminished because the people our culture values do, does not look like you. And at the same time, we are encouraged to give our bodies away in the pursuit of pleasure being the end goal. At the very same time, our culture idolizes the body and it cheapens it. And both, I think, can lead us into a crisis of emotional and mental health. What if our culture's view of freedom actually leads us into a a view or a life of bondage instead? Freedom is a very good thing. But if we make that the ultimate thing, like everything else, what if it becomes an idol? And if so, how do we break free from it? You see, I think Bourdain's body was a temple, just not to God. The vision of, 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 of uh, our body being a temple was not to create some kind of a stoic, joyless, cold life. That's a misunderstanding of what this passage means. Because there are two primary functions of a temple. It was where that particular god or goddess was said to have been present. And it was also the place where you worship that particular god or goddess. And so the, vi- the vision of our body being a temple is, is that it reveals what we worship and it reveals the presence that lives within us. And ultimately the person that we are becoming. That is what Paul is getting at. But here's the challenge for us. Despite that being the case, why do we still chase after these desires that lead us down a path of dissatisfaction and dependence? Understanding with our mind does not seem to be enough to change the desires of our heart. And as one writer said, it can feel like pouring water on our head to put a fire out in our heart. Here's what I think has happened. The kind of questions we ask ourselves uh, as we try to live out this vision off the back of this kind of subject is what, therefore, can or can't I do with my body? What can I get away with? Where is the line? And and it's important to have boundaries. It's definitely important to have boundaries. But, But when we ask ourselves these kinds of questions, what we are essentially saying is how much of an idol can I make of this? If my body is a temple to the Spirit of God, can I make sure there's a spare room somewhere for this? or a back door that leads its way out to that. The problem with that kind of question is it's actually quite futile, because when your heart is a slave to something, you don't decide where the line is. So a better question maybe to ask ourselves this morning is to follow this idea of the temple. Through what I do with my body, who or what do I worship? What does what I do with my body say about who I love? What presence lives within me, and subsequently, who am I becoming? Whatever we believe, we all worship something or someone. We all see something as ultimate. The question is, what or who? And what's even trickier with this is that so much of what we do is actually as the result of subconscious habit. A study by Duke University suggests that around 40% of our daily actions are not as the result of choice, but they're as the result of habit, subconscious habit. And so how do we 
reshape our desires, to reshape our habits in order into one that honors God with our bodies. And so I think the most fundamental basic way that we can live out this call for our, our body being a temple to the Spirit of God is to begin the process of redirecting our hearts. If our love for pleasure, for example, is greater than our love for God, if our bodies look more like a temple to Aphrodite than to the Spirit, there will only be one outcome. The work of redirecting our hearts is to redirect our greatest longings and desires. Augustine, in reflecting on the journey of his life, he said that the single desire that dominated my search for delight was simply to love and to be loved. And that's certainly true of my experience. I'm guessing it'd be true of some of us here as well. The way that Augustine fell down initially was the places that he looked. The places he looked for, a fulfillment for love, led him into a place of bondage. Because wanting more is often not the problem, it's the places that we look for that let us down. And so, everyone all right? It's quite intense, right? We'll be fine. Um, and so I just want to suggest that there are, there are three ways and we can begin to practically this, begin this process of redirecting our hearts towards Jesus and to becoming a temple of the Spirit. The first is our communion with God. Secondly, our presence in community. And thirdly, our uh, purpose in commission. Paul says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself, that whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit, and that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? So there are a few things going on here. Firstly, there's a claim that the physical world, signified by the body, is incredibly important when it comes to our life with God, not just our spiritual lives. What Paul is saying is that firstly, there is a communion within ourselves. As Nancy Piercy says in her book, Love Thy Body, there is a wholeness to our existence between the personal, uh, mind, spirit, and emotion, and the physical, our, our body and our desires. You, you cannot separate them or, or ignore one to benefit the other. Now, this picture of unity would have been remarkably uh, striking to the Corinthian church at that, ta- at that time. As we've seen with, the, with Gnosticism and, I think, in our contemporary culture today, so often these two things are seen as separate, able to be- behave independently of each other or, or even compete against each other. But as Grant says, the Christian vision of personhood sees each of us as a whole self, mind, body, and spirit. Now, this vision, this changes our perspective on our thoughts, on our actions and our desires, knowing that they all actually influence each other. And this vision influences how we see other people as well. It challenges us to see people as exactly that, as as persons, whole persons, to be respected and honored, not seen as vehicles to satisfy our own power or pleasure or desire. And if there is one thing that that argues for this unity, this unity between the personal and the physical, it's God himself embodying the world through Jesus in order for us to have communion with him. Piercy says, what really set Christianity apart in the ancient world was the incarnation, the claim that the most high God had himself entered into the realm of matter, taking on a physical body. In Gnosticism, the highest deity would have nothing to do with the material world. By contrast, the Christian message is that the transcendent God has broken into history as a baby born in Bethlehem. The incarnation is genuinely physical, happening in a particular time and in a particular geographical location. The word, Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The way God brought brought us out of our slavery to our desires was by coming himself. 
being united with the physical world that he loves and created, so that by breaking, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. By coming, Jesus embodied this vision of the life that he now offers us, one where our desires and our loves are ordered in the right place. And so both through Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, and through what Paul is describing here, is the union of God with his people. Not only did God embody the physical world through Jesus, we are now his temple. He chooses to make his home, his temple, in us. We are united with him because he united with us. And it is love for us through his life, his death, and his resurrection that can ignite our love for him. But his communion, his presence in us, this also reveals something else, something that I think is hugely encouraging. It's that we can't change on our own. His presence is essential. We need his presence to help us, to guide us. And in Galatians 5, there is a beautiful picture of keeping in step with the Spirit, of walking with him. And the, the fruit of that, not being a captive to our desires, but instead we, we see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control control outworked in our lives. As we live out this reality of, of being a temple of the Spirit, that he lives within us, the actions that we take cultivate those qualities in us while he does a work in us as well. And occasionally this can happen in a moment. God can, can break our, our, or turn our hearts in a moment. We can and we should pray for that to happen. But there's also a journey for us to walk down with this as well, knowing that, that cultivating this way of life can take time and that there is no shame for you if you feel like you're at the start of that journey or if, or if you're sitting here thinking you don't know what I've done. Like There is no shame for those in Christ Jesus. He too was tempted in every way, yet did, but, uh, yet did not give in to those temptations, making us a path that we can now follow. And he still bears the scars on his body that paved the way for us. Jesus is the one that breaks into this story. He was the price that was paid to free us from this bondage and into communion with him. As Augustine most famously wrote, you have made us for yourselves and our hearts are restless until, it's fi until it finds its rest in you. And so the second way we can begin this process of redirecting our hearts is in community. Paul says, do you not know that your bodies, plural, are members of Christ himself? You cannot fight this battle on your own. And today, with the consumerism of our culture, the way we are constantly inundated with choice and temptation to want more and more or upgrade to the next best thing, that has infiltrated how we view each other. Now, that is not the, the, the call to reflect this reality of living as a temple of the Spirit. Let me just read a passage again from Galatians 5, which I think is utterly profound. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Paul's solution to not using your freedom to indulge the flesh is incredibly, I think, serving one another in community. In many ways, that doesn't seem to be like a counter to that reality. But the thing for us to remember is that I, I cannot consider you as my brother and my sister and then mistreat you or, or treat you like an object. When you are in community, humbly serving each other, what you are doing is you're recognizing the value in each and every one of the people you encounter. And when you are humbly served in return, your value is recognized as well. And so you are learning to see people not as products to be consumed, but people to be loved. Humble service in community as an embodied way to counter 
that temptation. It's a way to reform your instincts, to reform your habits into seeing other people as, as those to be honored and valued. In fact, more and more research is being done to show that not only does our mind influence our actions, which is, which is obvious, but our actions are influencing our mind. They're changing how we see the world. What we do influences how we think. And so if we, if we serve one another, that will ultimately change how we see one another. And the other thing that community opens us up to is the practice of celebration and confession. Community is the, is the place where we can bear one another's burdens, where we confess when we're struggling where we can bring things to light and where we can celebrate in moments of joy. But the reality with community is that it does take time, but I think there's something really important to learn and quite freeing to learn in that. The way Augustine saw life was like a journey, and that journey we are on does take time, and it's actually very ordinary. All I need to do is just take the next step with you. There's not, I don't have to become this perfect person right now, I just take the next step. And it's partly why we meet as a church every week. It's not because we have nothing better to do on a Sunday or, you know, we're just free, so this is a backup option for us. It's because we believe when we come together to worship, to pray, to take communion, to eat together, when we hear God's word, we are participating in the process of redirecting our hearts. That's what, that is why we do this every week. This process of redirecting our hearts towards God is done together regularly in community where we remind ourselves that we are something, part of something bigger than ourselves and that we are not on our own. The band can come back up, please. And the final thing uh, this vision calls us to is it gives us a commission to the world. A temple is a static, geographical place where people would travel for miles to encounter God. But if, if we, the church, if we are now the temple, it's our job to bring the presence of God to the world. People no longer need to travel to the temple. The temple comes to them. And that's a challenge for us. Through our presence in our workplace, in our street, in our neighborhood, in this city, are we bringing the presence of God with us? Just to end, I'd, I'd like to read the fruits of the Spirit out again. If we follow this call of seeing our bodies as a temple to the Spirit of God, these are the things that will get outworked in our lives. Before I do that, I'm just going to pray a prayer. I'm going to ask the Spirit to, to come to reveal in us maybe things that have taken us hostage, taken, us, taken our hearts captive, that we need to ask God to, to help us to break free from. Perhaps as you hear one of the fruits of the Spirit, you'll, you'll hear it, and it will make, one of the words maybe stick out in your mind. Maybe you'll think, man, I don't have that. I really want that. I just encourage you to, to hold on to that. And as we worship, to give it to God, to ask him to help you cultivate that in your own life, by making good decisions, but also that he does a work in you to help see that reality come to birth as well. And perhaps you feel like you've gone on your own journey, you've gone on your own way, and maybe like Augustine, you're just exhausted and you're desperate for rest. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Like, go to Jesus. He is the only one that can satisfy our hearts. He's the only one that can satisfy the longings of our hearts. So why don't you stand? I'll pray for us and then I'll read the fruits of the Spirit again and then we will worship. Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much that you 
have a life for us that is better than we could ever know. Lord, when we chase after created things, we are, we are sorry and we stand and repent now. And we ask that you would give us the strength, give us the power through your spirit to seek you first, to put you as our, as our place of worship. Holy Spirit, we ask that as we, as we worship now, you would reveal those things in our hearts where we have, have strayed. And we give them to you and we ask that you would move and you'd free us. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Amen.